We turn again tonight to the book of First Kings, and so I'd invite you to turn there, First Kings 19. And to a journey that while Elijah has not planned it, certainly the Lord has. In all of the all that has transpired, bringing him to really in that way need to trust the Lord again. Not that he stops in that way, but but in that discouragement, in that that frenzied nature of this journey that he is on to remember who the Lord is, but also to remember who he is to be then as well. But let's hear these words. First Kings 19, we'll take for our text verses 1 through 8. And so after the Lord has sent rain, we remember here is Elijah who outruns Ahab to Jezreel. And now we hear this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we read these words, we, we perhaps find ourselves tonight empathizing with the prophet. It's enough. And Lord, in the weariness of life, then we come. We come to be refreshed, to be encouraged, to be humbled, and brought again to the call of your word and to the call of the gospel, but also sent forth recognizing, Lord, the abundance of the provision that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, you know the words that you would have to speak to this people tonight. Father, may I be your servant, able to bring that which is yours, not in my own ability, but, Father, in the power and unction of your Spirit. That, Father, it would fall upon ears ready to hear and hearts ready to be changed. And that, Father, we would be encouraged and blessed in the means of grace you have given. And so, Father, we ask, hear our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Children of God called to be saints, Elijah was a man just like us. And it's something that's been ringing through my ears a little bit in this past week and in recognizing the scene not only there at Mount Carmel, but also that, that last scene of the hand of the Lord upon him and going in the strength of the Lord to the work that he had been called to. And so as we hear those words in the book of James, we take those words as an encouragement not only to pray, but to recognize that prayer, that the work of ministry isn't about super prophets or super apostles, but, but it's about relationship. 
It's about a dependence upon Almighty God. It's a recognition that all of the work that he does of saving a people and claiming a people is his work, not ours. It becomes then another message of God's promise, that he is with us and that he hears us. But it's also a statement of reality. Elijah was a man just like us, which means that Elijah was a broken sinner like us, which means he had weaknesses and sorrows just like us, which means that Elijah wasn't the Messiah just like us. You see, that's our wrestle sometimes in ministry. Perhaps even the temptation for Elijah after the victory at Carmel, after God places his hand upon him and and he runs to Jezreel. Look at this ministry. Look at this victory. Look at all the blessing that has come by way of my work, by way of my effort. Perhaps Elijah had begun to fix his heart on the victory rather than on the God who brought it. That in our serving, then, we, we too can become so focused on, on the results rather than on the Redeemer who provides them. And that's especially poignant in those times where things aren't always good. We don't even see that in the life of Elijah, right? A man just like us, on the run, hiding in a cave. No one wants to listen to him. His life threatened. Not all of our ministry in Christ is glamorous. It's certainly not always a win. Every time we go out to share the gospel, it's always received with joy and thanksgiving. You've explained everything so well. Praise the Lord. Let's find some water and be baptized. It doesn't happen that way. Not every time. Sometimes. You see, when there's still more serving to do, or when those setbacks occur, or when we're forced to acknowledge that there are things that we cannot change, we can become discouraged in our ministry and service. And it's at that point when we lose focus on our roles and our purpose that the discouragement can be overwhelming. When we try to take a place in the narrative that wasn't ours to begin with, when we want to be God or when we want to be deliverer or when we want to be king and head of the church, there's only brokenness. There's only discouragement. That's why the apostles take so much time encouraging the early church. Like in these words from 1 Corinthians 15, you know them well. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But I think that's where Elijah finds himself in this narrative. I've been working. And all that you've asked me to do, and all that you've asked me to be, and and look where we're at. It doesn't look like anything's better. In fact, it looks like it's worse. Your labor isn't in vain, Elijah. You're a man just like us. And so he needed to be reminded of that. And so do we. And so in God's grace, and that's really the overarching theme yet of this text, Elijah is then led to go out on a journey, one that at first glance we look and say, Elijah's just taken off. 
God's still sovereign in these things too, in every aspect of this narrative. But it's a journey used to bring Elijah to the end of himself, which is the place really we all need to be brought in our serving in order to be brought in a fuller dependence upon the work and person of the real Messiah, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the Lord moves his prophet on a journey too great for him, so he would come to know God's greatness in his promise. And so it's a journey then of provoked seeing in verses 1 to 3, a journey of perceived sorrow in verses 4 and 5, and then a journey of provided sympathy in verses 5 through 8. Seeing and sorrow and sympathy. But it really becomes about what needs to be seen. And at the end of last text, our last week's study, we're kind of left wondering, what is Ahab going to do? He has seen all this. He has seen the hand of the Lord on Elijah. That's the last look he has before he pulls off on the side to the, to the exit for Jezreel and back to home. What will become of all that has happened? All the mighty victory of Yahweh at Carmel. And so he goes home and he tells his wife what a day he's had. Ahab told Jezebel, but hear it, all that Elijah had done. Not Yahweh, not the Almighty God. Look at all that Elijah had done and how he, Elijah, had killed all the prophets with the sword. And we hear that emphasis here on the word all. Here's all of it. He missed all of it. He was there. He saw all of it. He heard all of it. He heard all of the aftermath. He saw every bit of God's power that day. Oh, honey, you'll never guess what Elijah did today. Baal is impotent. His altar destroyed. His prophets slaughtered. Ahab, you've been given all the truth, all the proof. You have all of it. Here we think the triumph of truth. Here is the message of Yahweh. And Ahab doesn't believe it. <laughs> Look what Elijah did. He won't even mention the name of the Lord. He will not admit his wrongdoing. And his wife is livid. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. It's only a threat. Elijah knows who he serves. She just sends a messenger. She doesn't send an executioner. She doesn't send a hitman. Here's just a word from you. In the name of a God who can't do anything at all. Elijah, prophet of the Most High, looked at by Ahab and Jezebel as the one responsible for killing Jezebel's family, her people, the priest she brought with her, the way of life she stood for. Jezebel doesn't believe either. And at first read, that floors us. How can, how can you not? That altar is gone. All your prophets are toast. And you're still clinging to the lie? 
I've shared the truth of the gospel with you. This is Jesus risen from the dead. Here's the glory of Easter. Certainly you'll believe it. And then people walk away disaffected. Where's the triumph there? Where's the truth there? This is the reality. Shouldn't both Ahab and Jezebel have turned in repentance and faith before the one true God? And yet her sin just comes to the fore. Failure to submit to what has taken place. Hearing what Ahab has spoken and rejecting it. In fact, it seems in the text like Jezebel knows the revelation is for her. And she despises the Lord and her prophet, his prophet for it. But why does this surprise us? Why are we blind to this reality? It says in Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Hebrews. He's talking about people that look like us. We're looking at the world. We're looking at somebody as wicked as Jezebel saying, Why doesn't she get it? Why don't we? Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a sign of the judgment spoken in John 3, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so it says, Dale Ralph Davis writes, quote, Let Jezebel be your teacher about what the human heart is like. But I don't think we need her because we know our own hearts. You see, hatred will always be the world's hardened response to the truth. And so unless Yahweh gives eyes to see, a new heart to believe, and the ability to see his light in his work, there's going to be darkness. It's going to remain. The light was shown. The power revealed. But it doesn't mean it's always going to be received. That's a hurt. That's a hurt of a pastor. Could I have explained it any more clearly? It's not about you. I, I told my son, I told my daughter that God, you're not the Messiah. You're just called to be faithful. But that remaining darkness, too, is a sight to behold because Ahab and Jezebel do not wish to see the light. But Elijah is taken back taken aback by the remaining darkness. Look at verse 3. Then he was afraid. And literally here, and, and the struggle in the Hebrew and even in the way that it has been copied, preserved by the Lord, but in many translations, it ends up being a word that looks more here like afraid, but really closer in many manuscripts to, and he saw. And there's a lot of sense when it's there and spoken in this way. Because Ahab and Jezebel couldn't see. But what does Elijah see? Here's the struggle in the text. Because he sees what? Ahab rejects God. Jezebel rejects God. He sees that nothing's going to change. That's at least what he perceives. This hasn't made a difference. What does it matter? 
What good has this victory accomplished? Lord, why did I live in a cave and live with a widow in Zarephath? Why have I made these journeys? What difference has my obedience made? This is what he sees. Here's his struggle. It's what he perceives. Jezebel's still running the show. Ahab won't stand for faithfulness. And I'm going to be forced on the run again because my life once more has been threatened. What difference did it make? And perhaps you think, well, that that sounds a bit dramatic, a bit over the top, perhaps close to home a little pity city. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we respond in the same way when when that road is difficult, when that walk of obedience is hard, when hearts aren't changed on our schedule, when it doesn't go our way? We know the truth of God. We know the power of God. We know his clear call. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But then we look around. Does it matter? Does it make a difference? Congregation, know without reservation that obedience and holiness matter. Righteousness and faithfulness always matter. And so in terms of the vision of the church, in terms of our own vision, we need correction. Because our obedience cannot work heart change for ourselves or for others. Our doing the will of the Lord is not what brings people to repentance and faith. You are not the Messiah and you need to see it. It needed to be clear for Elijah, a man just like us. It needs to be clear to every man and woman in this room. But instead, the Lord simply calls us to keep being obedient, to keep being faithful. And it's in this way that Elijah is provoked. His seeing is provoked. Why, God? That just as much as he's going to take up and run away from Ahab and Jezebel, he's really taking up to run away from God. What, What are you doing? God, what are you doing? He turns his eyes away from God's work and promises to that which he can make sense of when he just needed to look to the Lord again and again and again and to cry out to him for help and for comfort and for understanding and for grace. For as we hear it and as we see it, Elijah's victory must point us to the need for Christ's victory. And yet after experiencing that victory, of seeing it, of knowing it, of knowing the hand of God, Elijah now thinks what? All I see is disappointment. All I see is discouragement. All I see is death before me, so much so that he arose and ran for his life. He fled to save his own life, which means what? He's forgotten who he is. And who he is to serve. 
Elijah has lost the ability to see in this moment. Who are you to be, Elijah, in understanding the change that the Lord must bring among the people of Israel? Who are you, Christian, to be, understanding the change that the Lord must work in hearts to call sinners to repentance and faith? You to be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. You're to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't seek to save our own life, but to find our life most fully in Yahweh. It's the truth of the Savior, is it not? Matthew 16, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Elijah, in this moment, you are running away from the sheep that God has called you to faithfully serve. To a people you are to point to the Lord, to his abiding presence. The shepherd has been struck and he flees, which speaks to the need for a better shepherd, does it not? Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Are you just a hired hand, Elijah? Are we just hired hands, willing to serve the Lord when there is victory and reward to be had, but abandoning our call when trouble or persecution or hardship comes? Am I seeking to keep my own life or to find my life in Him? What are we seeing? Because Elijah runs, he's not seeing. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And you're like, oh, he just went out for a run? How about a 100-mile run? He gets as far south in the southern kingdom as he can get away from Jezebel and Ahab. And perhaps we think the journey gives them some time to reflect. And that would be right. He recognizes his need to go off by himself to seek the face of the Lord. In so doing, we're given glimpses of the Abraham and Moses narratives. And yet is the Lord not sovereign over these things too? Even this discouragement, even this running away, the Lord is there moving all of these circumstances so that his prophet will come before him and him alone to seek his face and will, to be humbled before him, to be reminded of what he's been called to even in the face of discouragement and disappointment. And yet that is a journey he will need to walk alone. It's a journey of perceived sorrow and that in the second place. And so he takes this run, he leaves his servant, and then in verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And so as we look at our text, we understand, and again, in the sovereignty of the Lord and the Lord's call upon his prophets, he goes out then with the intention to meet with the Lord. He goes out with the intention, even on that day, to walk this road alone and to go on to Horeb. But he's there in the wilderness. It's a word fraught with meaning in the Old Testament. 
He's not in the land of promise. He's outside of it. He is not where God has prepared for him to be, even though he will meet with God. He has intention, but then what? He comes and sits down under a broom tree. He gives up. He gives out. And he goes and he sits next to a shrub. And he asks that he might die. And he said, enough. It's enough. God, I've had enough. I've had enough of your call. I've had enough of your people. Enough. Look at what my life is. Look at what you've brought in my life. Look what you've worked among your people. Enough. Have you ever felt that way? You know what, God? All this stuff, enough. All this weariness, all this sorrow, all this brokenness, enough. All this hurt, all this pain, all this ridicule, all this persecution, enough. We're in the moment in this text where the kids melt down because they just can't handle it anymore. When you see that eruption of your kids and you know they're just tired and they just can't deal with their circumstances and this is the only response that's theirs. It's where Elijah is as we even try to shield each other from these things as adults, but, but enough is our fit, enough. Release me from the sorrow I see. I've had it. Look at all that I've done and for what, God? Enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. The darkness is real. And the discouragement is real. And to know colleagues that have ended themselves, these words are crazy. That we would come before God in the midst of all that he is working and all that he is doing. Of all that the prophet had seen. Of all that the prophet knows. And says, God, take me now. He loses sight of the gift of life and fixing himself. And throwing his heart into the trouble and sorrow that fills his mind and vision. It's enough. For I am no better than my father's. He loses sight of his identity. While you are no better, Elijah, you've been set apart by Almighty God to be his mouthpiece and to serve faithfully in the context of an unfaithful people. It's not enough yet. And yet it's the struggle and danger of ministry of any sort especially when times and serving become difficult. We know the right answers. We know what to say when those hurts are in our lives. But then we fix ourselves on the trouble anyway, the strain of relationships. We fill our hearts with the seemingly little change that has taken place. We are offended by the hardening of people's hearts. We are struck by the threats or insensitive things that are said about us enough. I don't want to do this anymore. 
I don't want to be here anymore. Like, wow, Elijah's in a dark place. Yeah. But he's not the first prophet. Moses, Numbers 11, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses said, enough. Jonah 4, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is better for me to die than to live. Elijah isn't the first, and he's not the last. But why do we get there? Why do we find ourselves in this place? Because while the sorrows were real, the perception of them was wrong. It was off kilter. It's because we place ourselves and our own judgment and our own way and our own plan in the midst of all of those things rather than submitting ourselves to the Lord. It's when we believe ourselves and our work to be the work that saves rather than the Lord's. That's when this is crushing. You you can't do it. Moses, you can't do it. Jonah, you can't do it. Elijah, you can't do it. Those who serve the church, you can't do it. But what should he be asked for instead? What's the alternative? Not to ask for death, but to ask for life. Lord, give me life. Wiseman writes, it is not up to us to ask for death, but for life. That's what this journey is about. Don't ask for death. Don't consume yourself with that which is broken, that which you are not powerful enough to fix. Rest in me. Your sorrow is not like unto my sorrow. That's the word of the Lord. Ask for life. Because this journey gives us pause to consider the wonder then of the humiliation of Jesus. Elijah, you are not able. And the taking of your life does not bring about the deliverance that I am looking for, that I am longing for, that I am working toward. Consider Elijah's complaint in the light of the description of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Elijah opens his mouth to say, it is enough. 
And Jesus says, it is finished. Elijah says, let me die. Jesus Christ says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Is there any sorrow like unto his sorrow? And Elijah in that way is shown grace. To know that he doesn't even have enough strength to carry out any of that. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. You see, Elijah's was perceived sorrow. He's overwhelmed. He needed rest. And in those moments where we struggle to hold on to our hope and to our comfort, that's when we knew too need to go out and come before the Lord alone to ask for life. Father, let my faith see differently. Let me not fix myself on apparent hopelessness or concern, but upon you. And the truth that you, O oh Lord, are in control, that you are caring for me and for all things throughout this journey of faith. And let me believe without doubt that you are not finished yet. Lord, let me live in that. In that hope and in that comfort. Because he wasn't finished with Ahab and Jezebel. And he wasn't finished with the people of Israel yet. And he wasn't finished with Elijah either. Because surely the Lord was in that place and Elijah didn't see it. He didn't know it. But now he will be shown tremendous grace in this journey of provided sympathy and that in the last place. But we can't separate the narrative from the why he has gone there. Van Veer writes, quote, There can be no doubt that Elijah's flight was a fruit of unbelief and therefore subject to God's reproach, end quote. And yet that isn't the end of the story. That isn't the lesson that we take from this. Because the Lord has need of Elijah, there's still work to be done. But he takes the opportunity to show himself strong and faithful and kind. That that's what he needed. And behold, an angel. It is the angel of Yahweh. That's what we hear in verse 7. The angel of the Lord, a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ himself. He draws near. Here is my prophet. Here is my word bearer who is consumed in seeing things that aren't really real. Filled with a heart of sorrow that is not like unto my sorrow. And instead of judging him or ending him or leaving him there in the wilderness by himself. He goes to meet him. The good shepherd goes to find him. And he touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. The Lord is abundantly gracious and kind. He touches the prophet, yes, to rouse him. But is that not the picture of Christ? Of Christ touching the sinner, of him walking with those with diseases of continuing to reach out in compassion. And more than that, he uses those hands to provide for Elijah's hunger and thirst after his journey thus far. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And we're like, Elijah, you've been here before. You've been provided for before. 
here in looking at that pancake and at that water. Lord, you provided me at Cherith. You provided for me when I was in the cave by way of ravens. You provided for me in the most unlikely way in the widow at Zarephath. Even in the midst of Sidon, even in the midst of brokenness, you were there. Remember Elijah. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. The beauty of this text was not, okay, Elijah, let's go. Get back into the fight. Go ahead. Let's go. Just keep pressing on. Just Come apart for a while and rest. Just eat. Just fellowship with me. Just sleep in the way that you need to. I mean, we know that, right? We see it in our kids. They implode in that fit. They just need to go to bed early, and the next morning they're raring to go. For you adults who give yourself to that work and keep working and keep working, there are times when you break down and your outlook at things is so poor simply because you haven't slept and you haven't eaten right. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's his promise. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat and hear it plainly, for the journey is too great for you. See, Elijah believed that the enemy was too strong, even though the Lord had wholly vanquished the prophets of Baal. He believed that the fear was too real, that seeing was believing rather than believing being is seeing. He believed that the burden was too great to carry and yet the Lord had sustained him through every part of it. He believed that the yoke was too heavy spiritually and physically and emotionally and yet the Lord mentions none of those things being too great. None of it. He simply references the journey. The journey is too great for you. Yes, there's a reference here to the physical journey, but it's more than that. Because that walk, that journey of faith, is too great for any of us. We all find ourselves in similar places to Elijah from time to time. Yes, we walk by faith, yet we need the Lord to remain with us and to increase our faith. This life and its call upon us in the Lord is too great for any of us to carry on our own and in our own strength. And so what we are led to is what? We must depend fully on the Lord. We must rest in Him, being cared for by Him, and even being used by Him to care for each other physically and spiritually and emotionally, in every way bearing each other's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. And what does he teach us on the journey? In their two congregation, all of our journeys, they look different. And yet they're all progression from here to Zion, right? And what does he teach us through that journey? First Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Elijah gives himself to the Lord and to his call. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 
40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. The journey and the strength of that food takes up a journey twice as long as what's already been accomplished. A 200-mile journey from Beersheba to Horeb. He has fully left the stronghold of Baal to be brought back where the covenant was made with Moses and Israel, which according to Exodus 3, 1, was the mountain of God. And so now what we see is the transition in the text to Elijah being shown to be what? If nothing else, then a sort of second Moses in that mention of 40 days and 40 nights. For Moses entered the cloud, Exodus 24, 18, and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets of the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses directed to meet with the Lord on behalf of the people, but Moses was a man just like us, an imperfect mediator. And Elijah, a second Moses, is an imperfect mediator, a man just like us. And yet both men, even in the transfiguration, remind us that they aren't the Messiah. They were precursors to the great and glorious and perfect mediator Jesus, who after fasting 40 days and 40 nights was hungry and yet fed in the will and way of his Father. And why would he do it? Why wouldn't Jesus just say enough? Enough of them. Enough of that sin. Have I not shown enough? Haven't I been kind enough? Haven't I spoken a great word enough? He does it for us and for our salvation. Because he's a great shepherd of the sheep who is willing and able to do all things for us and our salvation. To allow us to rest in him while he walked that journey all the way to Calvary in being faithful and righteous and the fulfiller of every promise, every part of the plan, suffering through his whole life and especially at the end in bearing the wrath of God for our sins. He journeyed willingly for you, carrying you with him, never too high, never too low, trusting in the plan of his sovereign father. And yet when Jesus was overwhelmed, he rested. When he needed a minute, he withdrew by himself to desolate places to pray. He separated from the crowds to be with his twelve. He separated from the twelve to be with his three. And even the Father and the angels attended to him. And so do we have any less need of rest and encouragement? Any less need for the Lord to provide sympathy to us? Of course not but he has provided you all things in his son. And he has sent his spirit into your heart as a guarantee of life. That's what rests in you. That is what's promised to you. That's what's been given for you. And so the father says, come, trust that. 
in every part of the journey He has called you on, in every part of the ministry we all share in, He will care for you and never leave you and never abandon you and will always provide for you. So don't abandon your post. Don't stop looking to the Lord. Don't run away from His calling. Keep your eyes fixed on Him as you find your life in Him. And seek His face always because Jesus never gave up on Elijah. And He doesn't give up on us. And He will never do so. So hear these words from Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, the journey is too great for you. It was not too great for Jesus. So in the goodness and great faithfulness of your loving Savior, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. To God be the glory for that. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the comfort of your word. And Father, we confess to you how often our eyes move away from your goodness, your past faithfulness, mercy, and love, and focus on the troubles and the struggles and the trials of the now. Where we afford our own lives more important than, Father, a life of faithfulness. Where we are consumed, Father, with the sorrow of the things that are going wrong rather than finding our grace and comfort in you. And Father, that can lead us to very dark places. And so, Father, we pray, help us not to minimize Elijah's call. These words have value. They have power. That, Father, if there be any in this place who find themselves alone and struggling in such a way where they would say to the Lord, enough where they would look at their own life as something to be thrown away, Father, be near unto them, meet them in their weakness. Use us together, Father, a fellowship to care for one another, to bear each other's burdens, and Lord, to continue to minister to the hearts one of another. But then, Father, help us to cry out to you for life, for life abundant, life filled with you, life found in Christ. Life abundant and free and recognizing the grace and the goodness and wonder of what you are working now and what shall be forevermore. You are faithful to all of your promises, even as you have shown yourself faithful in Jesus. And so, Father, may he be our answer. May he be our hope, our security, our provider, our rest. And so, Father, if in our serving we are found a bit crispy, struggling with burnout, feeling hopeless, being alone. Father, meet us. Lord Jesus, meet us there. 
and remind us of your goodness and grace. Restore us, Father, to right vision, an understanding of your call and your gift to us. And then walk with us that next step and the one after that on that long road of obedience and trust. So, Lord, you are faithful, seed time and harvest. You are faithful through all of those ups and downs, all those hills and valleys, all those windings of the road. But this journey ends in you. And so, Father, we pray, may that be sweet and precious to us. May it be a balm for our sorrows. May it be healing to our bones. May it be the grace that leads us forth in joy and in a desire to be thankfully obedient in all things. And so meet us and hear us. And Father, we ask then that the church would make that known. And as you continue, Father, to plant churches, we pray, might the word of God continue to go forth to the hearts of sinners and that you will bring change and you will draw your people to yourself. And so hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.